Father in heaven, we thank you that we could be here today. We pray, Lord, that you would bless your stu the study of your word, and we ask that your spirit would help us to, uh, to receive what you have to say to the seven churches. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so last week we, uh, we talked about the, uh, the woman and the dragon. We talked about some of the symbolism there. Um, probably the dominant uh, image that we want to grab onto is this image of the, the woman being the church, you know, and, uh, and how the, the dragon, Satan, is always trying to devour, oppress the church and her children. Um, this is really an important image, um, and it, it's one that uh, it, it kind of got tossed out during the Reformation, which is too bad, uh, because a lot of times people ask, where, where the, uh, where, where, where's the feminine side of the faith? You know, what, what's the place for women within the church? And uh, where does the Bible talk about these kinds of things? Well, right here is one of those places. And throughout history, one of the major images of the church was that of mother. And I think that when... Uh, um, the Reformation took place and some of the praying to the saints and the, the real, the, the focus on Mary was rightly confronted that we kind of threw some of the, uh, the bathwater, some of the baby out with the bathwater type of a thing. Uh, and, and we lost some of those good images um, that, uh, that speak to the fullness of, of you know, what it means to be man and woman in Christ and, uh, and, and all of those kinds of things. Um, but uh, the imagery here is very much uh, of um, this, this woman who is protected by God, but Satan is always warring against her. And, and that's what's happening with the church all the way from the ascension to when Jesus returns. And the message over and over again is that God protects, God provides. Uh, in, in fact, um, in the last half of chapter 12, uh, it, it says that uh, the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she is to be nourished. And, uh, you know, kind of this beautiful image from Isaiah chapter 40 that's embedded here, you know, that we will mount up on wings like eagles. We will walk and not grow weary. We'll run and not be faint. Uh, you know, just, you know, God is saying, you know, yeah, I, I'm protecting, I'm providing. So after this dragon comes, we have these two beasts in chapter 13, and that's where we're really going to pick up the story. Um, and uh, chapter 13, it starts out, it says, uh, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous, blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth were like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So we'll pause there for just a second. So here comes this, this, this beast out of the sea, and um, um, it's got ten diadems on, on what? Ten heads. No, not on its heads, on its horns. horns. Right. So if you go back to the dragon, the dragon has the diadems on its head. Yeah. This has it on the horns. And... What we're seeing here is some symbolism showing that the authority of this first beast, the power of this first beast, is connected to the diadems of the dragon. He's a servant of the dragon. Yeah. We're going to go there? It's going to come a little bit more clear as we keep going. Okay. 
and so the, you have the 10 and the 10, and you have the 7 and the 7, um, and uh, these are considered to be powerful numbers. It's got these blasphemous names all over it. These weird images from chapter 12, they're a reference to Daniel and some beasts that he saw in a vision there that were about the nations of, uh, of the world and, and, and things that, that took place um, politically in the world. Um, and, uh, and so Daniel had this vision of different kingdoms and everything else. And so it says, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So that's where it starts to tie back to, uh, to the dragon, okay? One of its heads... Verse 3, seems to have a mortal wound. Who else can we think of that has a mortal wound, but yet is alive? Yeah, Jesus. So this is, the, the symbolism here is that this is the Antichrist, okay? But its mortal wound has been healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon. The beast comes up, and they're in awe of the beast, but who do they worship? The dragon. Um, they worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Um, that's that number again that we talked about a couple times. It comes to three and a half years. And there, there is nothing parallel to it. You just kind of look at it, what does this mean? And it, for my money, uh, I, I think three and a half years reminds us, you know, seven is the number of completion and the number of, of, of fullness. And I think that this is saying that, you know, half of seven, three and a half is God's having mercy and he's cutting the time short. Jesus actually talks about that when he talks about the end that, you know, that the father out of his mercy has cut the time short. So that, that, that's what I see there. Um, you're more than welcome to disagree with me about that. I can't prove it. Um, but uh, uh, that, that's one of those, there's very little consensus on, on what does that mean. Actually, I should say, there are some people who are very confident about what that means. And, you know, and there's a variety of a lot of confidence about what it means. <laughs> and they don't all agree with one another. Um, He's allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was also allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written in the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Oh, wait a minute. It says everyone and then it says not everyone. Right? Okay. Everyone but? Yeah, that's where it comes out, I guess. It's yeah. It's it sort of, it says all the inhabitants of the world will fail and then it... Yeah, and I think, that there's, I think that there's a picture here of the church being all small and insignificant mm -hmm. in the world. So it's like everybody's doing this. Uh-huh. Except for this this remnant, this 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 portion that, that has been rescued and, and saved. Uh -huh. yeah, that, that's, that's what I get out of that. Okay. Um, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Um, if anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword, he will be slain. 
Here's a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. So what we have here is, um, you know, the, this beast comes up out of the sea. The sea is uh, the, uh, uh, the, the symbolic home of God's enemies. You know, and, and, and he comes up and he, he, he's speaking blasphemous words. He's teaching against God's will. But he has this great authority and this, this great power. And people are, are captivated and drawn to him. And so when we look at this, um, we've already talked about how there's conflict going on both in the physical realm and in the spiritual realm. We would say that this is going on in the spiritual realm. It has impact on our physical day-to-day lives, but it's talking about spiritual things. Bill? Who gave him the power? Satan. The dragon. Yeah, well, I mean, in, in terms of what's going on here, yeah. But, I mean, ultimately, it all goes back to God working out his plan and using their rebellion to... Um, it's like what I was talking about in the sermon, that God gives good gifts... And then the way we use them, they become twisted and bad. And so, yeah, God gave these spiritual powers real power. And then what they've done with them is to twist them and to use them for the sake of destruction, spiritually speaking. And then God uses that to, uh, um, to bring about his salvation, uh, which we're not seeing in this, by the way. Not yet. That's, that's yet to come. Um, you know, he's just describing this, this spiritual um, uh, context where <clears throat> you have uh, people who say we're speaking God's word, but what they're actually speaking is blasphemy. You know, we're telling spiritual biblical truths even. You know, it, and it doesn't match up with his word. It's misleading and, and it's, it's deceiving people. And, and can we see that? Does that take place? Absolutely. All over the place. Um, you know, this, this is one of the things that, uh, I'm, I'm going to use a Reformation um, example. Um, you know, Luther was very famous for, uh, actually Melanchthon is the one who, who quoted it, who wrote the line, but Luther gets, gets slapped with it and he would take it too, um, that the Pope is the Antichrist. Well, the Pope, as the, uh, the head of the Catholic Church at that time, was teaching people to use uh, icons, not icons, um, not indulgences, but yes, I'm getting to that. It's where they had the, like bits and pieces of saints and oh, relics. relics, thank you. You know, and, and basically to pray to these things, to pray to the saints, uh, you know, to buy indulgences, to pay for you know, the forgiveness of sins and, and all of those things. That message is anti-Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you can point to this all throughout history, you know, that you know, when, when we disagree with God's word, it's stepping into that zone of, of the anti-Christ. And that's what this, this beast represents. You know, everybody who would lead people away from Jesus, whether that's even within the church or outside of the church. Bill? Yeah, the the thing that bothers me, it makes it sound like you don't have any chance. He was given authority over all the tribes, all the language, all, you know. 
it's as you say, but mm -hmm. but uh, uh, it, it, it doesn't leave you much room. It, it doesn't, you know, it, uh, for freedom of, of uh, decision, if you will. You know. Well. I, I guess two things on that. Uh, one, I think that we vastly overestimate our ability to choose and, and to be free. You know, God gave He gave you freedom, yes. Uh, yes, to choose things beneath you, but not to choose things that are above you. You have a bound will. Um, did you ever desire to be president of the United States? No, I, you know, some people, some people, they, they're like, I'm going to be president when I grow up yeah. or maybe a better one. You know, um, I'm going to play in the NFL, you know, or the NBA or, you know, whatever. Just because I think that and it's my will and my desire, is it going to happen? No, our, our will is, is bound. Uh, we might desire things far beyond, but what we can actually say, that's, that's what I'm, I'm going to do. You know, no, it doesn't work that way. And the same thing is true spiritually. You know, in Ephesians, it says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. I can't even be good for a whole day. <laughs> I'm still working on a minute. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, you still have that ability to choose right or wrong, good or evil, uh, it, you know. In Christ, we do absolutely that the Spirit works in us to make us alive, so that we're doing that. But that's that, that's all done because you've been made alive in Christ. Yeah. But you know, what do dead people choose? Nothing. The, yeah, they choose to rot. But now you are alive in Christ, and now that you're alive, yeah, there's all kinds of choices that we make in terms of seeking to be obedient repenting, turning away from our sin and all of those kinds of things. But the image of the scripture is that when it, when it comes to this whole, um, I, uh, I choose God or whatever, apart from Christ, you choose sin. You know, and that's, 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 and we still struggle with that as Christians. But when you choose Christ, you choose God. In Christ, we choose God, yes. There's, a, there's I think, a, a predestination thing in this. There is. Yeah. This, you know, if you weren't written in the book of life from the beginning of time, you don't have any choice. You're done for. If you were written, it's, you, 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 you still you don't have a choice. And I think, I, I think again, this is a question of, it's tricky writing a Bible. Hmm? You know, and, and it's one of, you know, but it's a difference between God's perception and our perception. Yeah. We can't know who those people were. Right. So we have to live as if, as if we're making our choices to whether we're going to be written in the book of life or not. Because, you know, we, we don't have access to that information. We don't know what we're going to do tomorrow. Right. But God does. And the people that we interact with, we don't know where they are on that, yeah. you know, that choosing and all of that stuff. So how do you interact with them? By the way, there's a book that my grandchildren brought with them. And if we don't have a copy in the library, I'm going to get one. Not a religious book. It's called Oh No, George. And it's about a dog. And I'm not going to go through the whole book. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's it wouldn't take that long, but I'm just going to go through. The first thing is, 
Harry, who owns George, is going out to do some errands and tells him to be very good. And George, oh yeah, yeah, I'll be good. I'll just be great, you know. And then he walks out the door, and George trots off and he sings, "I hope I'll be good." <laughs> and, and, and you get the feeling it's a very honest, deep felt hope. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. So what this is calling us to recognize is that there are spiritual powers at work in this world that would lead us astray from Jesus, that would take us away from our salvation. Yeah. It's striking in some ways how much this is applicable across history, not as a, not just as a end times, but... Yes. Well, it all depends on how you defend, define end times. Because I define it as when Jesus rose or ascended into heaven until he comes back, okay? But there's so many others that are like, okay, there's going to be this period of time, and then we got to watch for these things. No, this is, this is the history of the world. This is constantly happening. And I think that that's one of the keys to understanding Revelation is that it's not talking about, oh, you start checking this off and that took place and that took place. And, you know, no, this, th th these are broad strokes. You know, th I mean, there are some finer details, but I mean, this is very broad and it's, it's constantly happening. And this is written in the context of the tr persecution of the church. You know, so, I mean, there are people who are dying for the faith who are suffering for the faith, and they're looking around and they're saying, what's going on? And God is telling them, this is what's going on behind the scenes. Satan is at work attacking the church. He has operatives, political powers within the church that are at work that seek to lead people astray. Be aware of that. And that's not even the whole picture because we haven't gotten to the beast of the land yet which speaks of the political powers that are at play um, in the world. You know, and so as you look at this, and he's talking to people who are in persecution, verse 10, he says, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he will be slain. It's kind of like, this is happening, people. Accept it. You know, you're going to suffer in this life. But... I've overcome. I've won the victory. What happens if you die? You go to be with the Lord. You join those saints under the throne that are re singing and rejoicing and praying and all of these things, waiting for the day of resurrection. The victory is secure, even if right now it doesn't feel like it. Even if right now so much of life is, just feels like it's wrapped up in suffering. And I know, I, you know that, that there's a lot of good in life that we get to experience too. But this is, this is really talking to people who are suffering, who are going through some really bad times. You know, I, I, you know, I've never had anybody threaten my life because I'm a Christian. They experience that regularly. Paul is writing this from exile. He's living on a barren rock, you know, because of the gospel. You know, and that's, you know, the, so... Some of these images seem very stark, but they're written to a very dark time. People who are going through very dark things. And, and they're, they're saying, why? Well, because this is going on. Satan's attacking the church. And, and, you know, and it's being eroded from the inside. 
And, and then he, he continues. He says, I saw another beast rising out of the earth. The earth is where people live. So, so this is speaking of political powers. He had two horns like a lamb. And it spoke like a dragon. It spoke like Satan. Is what that's saying. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people, and by the signs that it is, <clears throat> and by the signs it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the, be the image of the beast to be slain. It it's basically um, talking about uh, political structures that uphold a uh, religious structure that is antichrist. Okay? Um, uh, also, which is, by the way, when we start talking about the separation of church and state, um, this is why that's a good thing. You know, um, you know this ability to, uh, to have a plurality within, within your, uh, your um, country. You know, and, and so when we speak up for the rights of Christians, we also need to make sure that we speak up for the rights of, of, of other religions in terms of how our country works. Because there are plenty of other countries that are more than willing to establish some kind of a religion. And, uh, uh, and be sure to remember that a religion is anything that you put your hope and your trust in. A god is anything that you look to for your best. So you know, when a government chooses secularism over religion, they have chosen a religion. Does that make sense? You know, the belief that the physical is all there is, is a belief. It is a religious system. And you can do whatever you want. Yeah. If it seems good to you. Well, that, that gets into the morality side of things, but yeah, it, it impacts that. Secular governments seldom get rid of all laws and say you can do whatever you want. Right. That just doesn't happen. They say, here are our laws. Right. Yeah. We, we are moral beings. Yeah. We are created with God's word written, God's law written on our hearts. Now that gets darkened, it gets blurred, it gets messed up through, through sin. Yeah. But when you look at the sweep of history, whether the countries are you know, pagan or Christian or you know, whatever else, you can see a lot of crossover in um, what is right and what is wrong in, in the laws. Also the vengeful beings. Absolutely. And, and, and that's always in conflict with our morality. We write, we, we make laws and things, and, and we don't want to stop with protecting, protecting people. We want to get even. Mm -hmm. It's not a moral or Christian value. Right. I you know, think that if you're letting the government do the getting even, then it's okay. I don't think, the, no, I don't think, I, I think the government, in my mind, okay, mm -hmm. Justice has nothing to do with vengeance. Mm -hmm. to, to me, they should be totally separate. Should be is not always is. That's true. Okay. No, no, no. I'm saying 
this yeah. is my ideal. I'm not saying this is what happens. Right. But the idea of a legal system and stuff should be to protect society and not to take vengeance on someone. Uh, now, sometimes you have to issue some severe penalties. Yeah. But, you know, uh, to protect society. Right. But there's a difference in motivation. Absolutely. Like in, in parenting, I think there's a, a principle of never strike in anger. Yeah. Sometimes you might have to strike, but not when you're angry. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like how when when someone is executed and everyone cheers outside. Oh, that's so wrong. Always just yeah. so disturbed yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was kind of the same thing. The, the Burger King manager got fired in Florida when they were going to execute Ted Bonda, and he had a Burger King outside of the prison and put up a big sign that said. Free fries or ten fries. Oh, geez, yeah. <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Jesus says an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, so sometimes you have to have that right? Oh, yeah. That, that, that is kind of the way of, of the world. Yeah. Yeah. But he also calls us to live in forgiveness and grace with one another. Yeah. We talk about systems like religion, legal systems, but we forget that's not controlled by system is controlled by individual mm -hmm. so those individual attempt it you know and so they do wrong and whatnot just like the catholic thing now it's those individual and it's not the catholic system right it's the individual that yeah, but if you're in a, attempted but, but if the system predisposes you to go down a certain path Yes, people are choosing, you know, to, to cover something up or whatever. But if if you, it's a whole lot easier to cover up if the system you're operating in kind of nudges you down that way or, or turns a blind eye to when you do it. You know, if it, if it's something where if you're in a system where um, this is analogies always fall apart. But when I first started working at the company I was working at. We had these Christmas parties, and there was like alcohol over all over the place, and that's what you just did. And then someplace along the line, you didn't do that. We didn't. I mean, you, you had some turkey and ham, and and so the the system is. I mean, somebody may have had something, but it wasn't like what it was. So the system itself didn't let you. You always had that choice of what you were going to do, but the system that when I started was, oh yeah, bring alcohol. Let's everybody have a good time. And the system when I quit was. No, we'll just have a nice time and have, you know, so. Yeah, I, I think people, individuals, um, particularly at the beginning of things, very influential in a system. But systems do kind of sometimes take a life of their own, mm -hmm. you know, and, and they perpetuate themselves to some degree as long as, you know, it's being reinforced within the system, whether that's through the leadership of that system or it's through the acceptance of that whole body. Did that makes sense? Mm -hmm. You know, so if, if everybody within the structure, you know, thinks this is what's right, then it kind of becomes a self-perpetuating whether the people at the top, the leadership, are saying, yes, that's the direction we should go in or not. That's why sometimes you have rebellions when um, there's a, uh, a change in, the, in a uh, government, you know, and they, they want to make good things happen, what we would call good things, and the people rise up, they're like, no, you know, our system works. Yeah. Like we as Christians 
-hmm. because you have to stand alone. Well, the person being that system has to stand back and be their individual. It's yeah. a difficult task. Oh, it's very hard. It's very hard, but it can be done because it's I would say that it can be done as a Christian because we are part of a bigger, more powerful system, so to speak, yeah. because we're part of the kingdom of God. Yeah. You know, and so when we, even when we stand alone, we're not alone. Yeah. You know, and so when we stand up against, you know, the, whether it's the political powers that be that are you know, destroying the world, or whether it's the religious powers that be that are destroying the world, you know, when we stand in Christ, we're not alone, and we stand in His authority, which is greater than the authority of the system. Right. We've got to remember too that God did legislate yes. uh, government. Yep. And so on. And, and uh, I hate to think of the chaos without government. Absolutely. If you will, can it get corrupted? Yes. Yeah, <coughs> Yeah. People are involved with it, and people can corrupt things. Yep. Yeah. But, uh, uh, without it, it would be chaotic. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you know, uh, when we stand up to the government as Christians, uh, in general, we don't do that violently. No. I mean, I know that there are places in the world where that does happen, but in general, um, we speak out. We call to something higher, something better. We call people to the word. We proclaim, you know, this is God's will for how we should live and, you know, and, and all of those kinds of things. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're not generally called to take up the sword against... Uh, Thank God we can do that without getting beheaded in this country. Right, right, right. 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 Yeah. We can stand there and speak and speak and speak because we are Christians, but we have power above us that's guiding us and right. behind, watching our back, if you will. Absolutely, absolutely. Who ultimately wins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and recognizing some of that, I mean, I'm going to go back to verse 10. If anyone's to be taken captive, into captivity it goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, you know, with the sword he must be slain. So there are consequences, uh, you know, within this earthly realm uh, of standing up for our faith, you know, and, and we need to kind of keep that and, and be ready to accept that. It's one of the things that was so compelling about the early Christians is that when they went to martyrdom, um, they often went willingly singing hymns. I can't even imagine myself doing that. I'd be weeping and screaming and trying to get away, you know. But, I mean, St. Irenaeus, uh, this, just this incredible account of this old, old man who taught the church. He, he actually, I believe he knew John. Um, and, uh, and so all these years later, as an old man, um, the, he runs afoul of the emperor and he commands that he be killed. And he comes, he's going to go into the, the, not the Colosseum in Rome, but the same type of a thing. And uh, he stands there, he takes off his clothes himself singing a hymn as he walks to the beasts to be eviscerated. You know, just, my God can bring me through even death. Yeah. You know, um, I think the Amish, if I'm not mistaken, they have the, their Bible and they have their Book of Martyrs, and they are mm. brought up on that, those stories, I think, to just 
Yeah. Be prepared. It's yeah. happened to them before, and I think you know we don't know a lot of those kind of stories, uh, even things going on today, of course. But yeah. Uh, it is, and that's the right use of them. Yeah, to use them as an example, right. not to not to worship them, you know, oh, no, but uh, no, no, but no. to use them as an example. Absolutely. I, I think it's important just to keep in mind that Christians don't have a monopoly on people who have faith sufficient to face death. Fearlessly. Oh, that's true. Now we may say, well, they had faith in the wrong God; it's not going to help them. I don't know where God comes down exactly on that. <laughs> but it's not a uniquely Christian thing that people go willingly to death for their religion. Yeah. No, but I think it's an important message for us today as Christians to say, um, yeah, you might be called to this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's, yeah. There are still places in the world where Christians are killed for their faith. Yep, yeah. absolutely. And people... Think it's a good thing. Absolutely. Yep. And sometimes they're killed by other Christians. Yep. That happens too. And there are sometimes for their God that you know now they'll strap on the, the bomb vest and walk into a market square or walk mm-hmm. into a police yep. station in the Middle yep. East and set it off and they're doing it for God. And yep. Yep. Not doing it for the right God. Well, that actually uh, the, the first ones to start doing stuff like that were Eastern Orthodox. The way it's practiced now, it's mostly. Uh, yeah, mostly. Non-Christians. Yeah. Now, one of the things with this government is it talks this this um, political beast. Let's call it that. Um, it causes all, both great and small, uh, rich, poor, free, and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the, the has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and the number is 666. Now, look at verse 18. This calls for wisdom. Where does wisdom come from? God. God. Yeah. And you know what? I think John had the wisdom to know what this was, and I'm not sure anybody else ever has. <laughs> um you know, so so basically, the idea here is that you know when you're outside of this uh, political system that supports the uh, this this spiritual system that it's talking about, um, you know, this uh, um, the, the the combination, this kind of an unholy trinity with the the dragon, the first beast, and the second beast. When when you're outside of that, that brings you into conflict with people, and you know, it talks about a mark uh, that keeps you from being able to do business. If you live your life as a Christian, sometimes it makes your life pretty hard. And sometimes it's hard even to do business in this world. Now, I'm not saying that at some point there won't be some kind of a mark, some kind of a uh, uh, whatever that people will use to, to, you know, I mean, I've heard the microchips and all of that type of stuff. Um, I, I, I don't think this is that specific. And I don't think it's something that's going to be fulfilled in the future. I, I think that this has kind of always gone on. You know, it, it's, it's the... Uh, the good old boys club, you know, and, you know, people making deals on the side who are willing to, um, uh, compromise their ethics. Uh, I mean, cause that's, that's, that's a mark of its own, you know, that, uh, that I would be willing to, uh, you know, do something that's wrong in order to, you know, get financial gain, you know, those kinds of things. Um, so it, I think this is a little bit opaque in terms of exactly what it is. Uh, 
But I also think that it's significant that people get really twisted about the mark of the beast and they never talk about the mark of the lamb. That these two things stand against each other. You know, that God's people are marked. You know, and that's, you know, talking about baptism, that God puts his name on us, that we're, we're marked as his children. And that shows through, and it's supposed to show through, in the character of our lives. You know, as we live our lives of faith. And it's saying the same thing about those who, who reject Christ. That that marks them. You know, and they belong to the world. They belong to, you know, the beast and the like. Uh, and that's going to show forth in the character of their lives, too. So many people think that in Revelation, it's this happens and then this happens. Right. And this. But I think you've mentioned it a couple times. It's been there the whole time. Yeah. But it's like with the parade. You cannot see... Or talk about the whole parade at once. You right. see this, and then you see this, and you see the elephants, and then you see the clowns. And we cannot describe the whole thing at once, and we cannot understand the whole thing at once. But it's like everything is there the whole time. We just look at different parts at different times. Yeah. Yep. So when it says this calls for wisdom... Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Um, I guess there's just a couple things I'll say about that. I mean, this number has been applied all over across history to say, yep, that's it. No, that's not it. You know, this, this is all the way across history. It says this is a number of a man. Um, notice that in Genesis, man was created on the sixth day. Six is just a little less than seven, right? And seven is kind of God's number of perfection and completion. And I think that the symbolism here is just this, it re, it's, it's really close, but it ain't quite there, is it? You know, it looks like it's right there, but in reality, you know, it's not there. You know, um, and one of the things that I, I sometimes think about in terms of, you know, how far off do you have to be to be way off. If you get somebody off by one degree, you know, when you are like right next to, you know, the, uh, the, the, the is that the apex? The corner of the angle. Um, uh, at one degree, there's not much difference, is there? But you shoot that out a long way, you know, all of a sudden it becomes a problem. You know, you could be thousands of miles away from your destination just by being one degree off if you go far enough. Yeah, well, you know, whether you look at audible or visual, something that's close but not quite audibly, that's a horrendous distance. Yeah. And visually, it's what we call a clash. Yeah. And so sometimes that, that little bit is, is more important. If you get a little further off, it's maybe not so bad. Yeah. Space program, it's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> so, is there, not, not to get overly hung up on the number itself, but is there, why do they say 666 and not 6 or 66? Because it's, it's a trinity oh, of trinity. sixes. Right, right. Okay. So, gotcha. I think you, a, yeah. a couple of things that I think you could actually do with this. One is, it's, it's we've been talking about these three uh, the dragon the first beast, the second beast, I think it could be talking about that system, uh, this unholy trinity. Um, it, because, I mean, this, this is something that goes on through the, the whole period of time. 
Um, I, I, I think that it could also just be a, a symbolic number that's intended to be, you know, it's imperfect, but it's a perfect imperfect, yeah. if that makes sense. It's so imperfect that it's, you know, that's like the epitome of imperfection. So, yeah. Someone says the kind of first commandment. Yeah. You know, that's that urge to put ourselves as the God instead of God. Yeah. And that always sense. It does. You know, idolatry has this incredible ability of killing things. You know, and when we put ourselves, you know, in that top spot, it just wreaks havoc in so many different ways. Yeah. All right. This next chapter, chapter 14, um, John says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion, this is heaven, okay? He's seeing heaven now. That's Mount Zion. Um, Stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. They're marked right next to each other, people. You know, don't get bent out of shape over the mark of the beast. You're marked with Jesus' name and with the Father's name. It happened when you were baptized. Uh, you know, it's just basically the sign of faith. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. You know, it's just melodious and it's beautiful and it's just overwhelming. Uh, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except 144,000. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Spirit of God. That's basically what that's saying. It's a song of faith. Um, No one can learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Uh, It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And yes, we have to go back and unpack that. Um, uh, These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Okay, so first, 144,000. We talked about this uh, before. Uh, 144,000, you break that down in 12 times 12 times 1,000. 12 tribes of Israel, God's people of the Old Testament, 12 apostles, God's people of the New Testament, and 1,000 is a complete huge number. So it's saying lots and lots of people who believe in Jesus. That, that's, that's what the 144,000 means. It's not, a, a literal, it's not intended to be a literal number uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And so as they, they see heaven, it's, it's this beautiful, majestic you know, scene. Um, they're singing this incredible song. And, um, and it starts to describe them in verse 4. It says, these are those who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Who invented sex? God did, yes. Who presided at the first wedding? Who said, be fruitful and multiply? And the last time I checked, that generally happens through sex. So this, this is really not a matter of, uh, of sex in and of itself. But what this is, it's referring to the Old Testament imagery of idolatry as adultery. So when it says that they're virgins, that they haven't defiled themselves with women, because what's coming up is this, uh, this woman, this vision of a woman on a beast, um, 
a couple chapters here, the great prostitute and the beast. Um, <clears throat> it, it's, it's talking about this, this idolatry being like adultery. They have not, as the Old Testament would put it, hoard after other gods. That, that, that's what that imagery is. And yeah. Like in the sermon today when you were talking about so many of these pagan religions that go around sex. Yeah. They, they are involved with sex. And I think it doesn't say that they're not doing sex. It means they're not defiling themselves with sex. Right. right. Well, and I really what Revelations is really like, you know, He's got dragons and everything, all this stuff. But why wouldn't he just say, then why, why say, like, be a virgin? Why not just phrase that differently? Because it's all symbolism. It's all poetic. It's all drawing a picture. Right. You know, and, and so, you know, so much of Revelation falls into a, a genre of, of literature that's called apocalyptic. And, um, and really, when you, when you think about an apocalypse, you know, an apocalypse means a revelation. And so this is something that's done very artistically, lots of symbols, and they tend to be very, very opaque. But we it, tend to yeah, but the images are very graphic, and, you know, you're like, oh, wait, what's that? Um, and so uh, that, that's what I see happening there. It's, it's just using the symbolism to kind of drive an image. Yeah. Uh, hold, hold on, hold on. Wasn't... This also like a language that fellow Christians would understand when they received his letter after he wrote it to um, to protect them from um, the greater governments that were around him because they wouldn't have understood a word of it. Well, there there is an element of that, you know, you know, because we're pulling from the Old Testament all the time to understand that. But the thing is that 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 I would say, you know, just be careful when we say that other Christians will understand it because. We're other Christians, and a lot of times we're looking at them and we're going, "What are you talking about?" You know. So I, I think that sometimes this is difficult, even for Christians. You know, and, and I think it would have been for Christians, some Christians at that time, even. Well, nowadays we would have to study it like we're doing it now because we're those other Christians. But the Christians, when uh, John was around, would many of them would have gotten it. Yeah. They would have got it. It would have been their job to. Yeah. Press it around to everybody. Yeah, and really, even Christians today or all through time get the message, the ultimate message. Yes. Yeah, the ultimate. Right. Yeah, the end. Jesus good. wins. Yeah, yeah. 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 God wins. Yeah. Yeah. That God won. Yeah. <laughs> I find the past tense disturbing in this passage. Yeah. Because we've all sinned in our past. Maybe we didn't worship idols. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, be careful, because idolatry is pretty broad. You know, I always want this to say, these are those who have been forgiven for their sins, instead of these are those who didn't sin. And that that bothers me. Yeah, but this is the way God sees us. When when he looks upon us, and remember, this is is from heaven's perspective, Mm -hmm. he looks upon you in Christ, and you've never sinned as far as he's concerned. I see. Okay. Yeah. This, yeah. in theological terms, we would call this imputed righteousness. Mm-hmm. You know, right. it's a righteousness that's just given to you and it's credited to yeah. you. And so, you know, no, you've never defiled yourself okay. because you're standing there in Christ. Right. It's all gone. Yeah. These are those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Yeah. You know, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Yeah. It's all gone. 
there was a thing, there's a series called Hell on Wheels about the building of the railroad out the mm. west, and it's right after the Civil War, and it starts out with a guy who's full of vengeance, because his wife was a, he was a Confederate, his wife was a northerner, but somehow she got killed under dubious circumstances. So he's trying to track people down, and he thinks he's got one, sees him goes into a church, so he sneaks in and goes into the priest's side of the confession, oh. and finds out things, and then shoots the guy in the head. And then he's on the train out west to continue this, he runs into a couple of Irish Catholic kids. And this thing is made the book, you know, the, the, the papers, you know, that someone was shot in a confessional. And they're saying, gee whiz, whoever shot him did him a real favor. Because he <laughs> just confessed his sins, and he shot him, and he went straight to heaven in a state of grace. Nice. You should thank this guy. Nice. <laughs> God, if he things that way, I don't want any part of it. Yeah. <laughs> That's a little different look on things right there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so this is really all about, you know, they're, they're making this confession of faith because they have the spirit of God in them and that these are the redeemed. And then it says that, uh, um, that then I saw an angel flying directly overhead. There's going to be three angels here that we're going to talk about. Uh, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. The image here is this angel. It, 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 an angel is a messenger. Um, and the message that he's proclaiming is, you should know that there is a God who judges because of creation. That when you look at creation, you should know that there is a God that you are accountable to. And this fits with uh, some of the messages of the Psalms, that the stars declare the handiwork of the Lord and all of this kind of stuff. Um, that, that when we see the world, that the natural conclusion should be there's a God. Now, I'm not saying that, that you get to Jesus Christ right there. But I am saying that creation proclaims that there is a God who made us. Another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And again, that sexual immorality, I mean, sexual immorality was a part of the worship, that part of the problem, but you know, there's also that this is, this is idolatry. It's the adultery of idolatry. And so he's saying that this great religious system that is uh, symbolized by Babylon, the ancient enemy of God's people, it's all about worshiping a false god or false gods. And another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he, will, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb." And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. And I, I, I see this as a very strong warning to say, um, don't throw your lot in with the world. 
cling to God, cling to his, his word, you know, and, and trust in him for your salvation. You know, don't get wrapped up in, in all of these systems. Because what you, when you look at what happened with the Christians when they were being persecuted at this time, one of the things that they were sometimes asked to do is to say, first of all, that Jesus is not God, but to confess that Caesar is. You know, um, we're used to kind of this idea from the Middle Ages that the, the, uh, the king or the queen represents God. At this time and earlier, as far as they were concerned, the king or the queen is God. And they often, you know, kind of demanded worship like that, uh, where, you know, you know, no, you're going to offer your sacrifices to me. You know, you're going to pray to me. I mean, we see that with Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel. You know, don't pray to anybody except for me. You know, worship my image. Um, and then, you know, with, uh, with Daniel when he's praying before the lion's den, you know, Darius uh, passes a law. You know, no prayer to any god except Darius. You know, and, uh, and so this is saying, you know, remember, you know, there is a true God. And, you know, that's who, who we're going to, to trust for, trust in. And then verse 12, he says, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Because we're always going to be tempted to, to bend our knees someplace else. And this persecution, the struggle, it, it, it requires endurance. Sometimes life is hard. The life of faith can be very, very difficult. You, you don't always know what's coming down the road. It, it's, you know, and he's saying, keep your faith and your trust. Keep living, following God's will, his commandments, and keep trusting in Jesus as your savior because he's the one who's going to win the victory here. And then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. So when we look at what happens when we die, you know, for us as Christians, the image of death is not the end. It's a rest before the resurrection. You know, and as they look at, at you know, facing persecution, standing strong in the faith, dying for the faith, they're saying, They've done their job. They get to rest now. We get to keep going. We keep seeking the commandments. We keep um, seeking Jesus and living in his forgiveness. But eventually, whether it's through natural causes or not, we will die and it will be our turn to rest. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud one like a son of man. Uh, with a golden crown on his head, whether this is Jesus himself or an angel that is symbolizing Jesus, that, that's the imagery there, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. The last day. Another angel came out of the temple and of heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, 
uh, the angel who had authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clumps from the vines of the earth, for the grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it in the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden out, trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Um, so about 185 meters. Um, miles, sorry. Thank you. Well, mine says meters. Mine says miles. 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 And after they came back and uh, they've been, you know, proclaiming the gospel. And he says, um, pray to the Lord of harvest to send out workers into the harvest field before for the fields are ripe and the harvest is waiting. Right. Mm-hmm. That's the first half of the image. Is this the origin of the phrase, the grapes of wrath? I actually don't know. But I mean, that would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. The grapes of wrath. I think there's something though in the Old Testament that's kind of like from the Battle Hymn of the Republic too about yeah, he's trampling out the wine yeah. press, yeah. and I never really thought yeah. that yeah. part of that too. Grapes of wrath, and that's trampling an image out that. The of yeah. yeah. But that imagery, it, you know, it, of God's wrath being trampled out. I mean, it is Old yeah. Testament image, but it's, that's that's what's behind this too. You know, he's gathering the grapes, and um, you know, and is speaking to the judgment of the earth. That, that, that's why this is all so awful. You know, blood as deep as a horse's bridle for miles. It's saying that God's wrath and God's judgment is a horrible, horrible thing to live under. And this is what Jesus experienced when he was on the cross. You know, so I, I, part of what I grab out of this is that God's salvation is pretty darn incredible. You know, as he rescues us from sin and from death. And I'm out of time. And the price is really heavy. Yes. I mean, it's not like you need to go into the oceans. Right. Um, so here, here's what we're looking at. Revelation is 22 chapters long. I've got next Sunday and the Sunday after, and then I go back and teach confirmation class. Um, so uh, we will get into these... Uh, uh, these um, plague angels that are, are talked about in 15 and 16, uh, the bowls of God's wrath. Um, and uh, I'm going to try to get us through uh, chapter 18 next week, um, which means that I'm probably going to be skimming a lot, particularly in chapter 18. Um, and then uh, and then the last class, which is Labor Day weekend, and I know people are often traveling then, I apologize because this is the good stuff. It's the fun stuff. Um, it's heaven. So, all right. Blessings on your week, everybody. Thank you for your patience.